Gresham College presents A Swift Survey of Fundamentalism, the first part. Introduction by Professor Michael Minelli, Fellow of Gresham College. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Gresham College. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to see such a great turnout uh, for this afternoon's symposium. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm the Emeritus Professor of Commerce and a Fellow and a Trustee here. Um, and my job today as chair is really just to get the symposium going uh, and to help you, the audience, get the most out of this afternoon um, and to get the most out of our panel of three excellent and interesting speakers. Um, because I'm a business person, I, I will say, you know, this is about uh, getting down to business. And Bill Joseph, who is uh, speaking today and, and actually had the idea of conducting a, a, a symposium on fundamentalism, and did uh, all of the organization, first approached me about chairing it um, over a year ago. But despite my normal immodesty, I can do anything, um, I was actually uh, somewhat uh, scared about today. Um, you know, I may have dabbled in philosophy a bit, um, but as a largely a-religious business person, it didn't seem something that I could or should chair. Uh, but then I realized that during my four years as professor of commerce here, I had witnessed and, spoke, witnessed and spoken about fundamentalism uh, in business and economics and probably was myself a, a fundamentalist in several areas, uh, for example, control of the money supply. So I, I thought that uh, maybe, maybe I could do something today. We did uh, also hold a conference last year on the 22nd of April, and that was on diversity and danger um, across society, and it touched on more than you might think, uh, well beyond the uh, racial or sexual diversity onto a whole variety of areas. And we, of course, uh, looked at fundamentalism that afternoon as a potent element uh, in many societal problems. Now, in what follows, uh, some of you Gresham regulars uh, may hear a few echoes of my previous lectures, um, self-plagiarism, if you will. Uh, but for the rest of you, uh, novelty, I hope, rules. Now, last year, um, we made uh, five points about diversity. Our first point was that isolated communities lose diversity and virility. Isolation is never good over the long term, though in the short term it may convey uh, certain monopolistic benefits. Second, society should pursue policies that encourage diversity. Diversity among businesses is a result of competition and innovation, and Adam Smith's key insight was that markets harnessing of human desires, not all beneficial or benign, uh, could achieve beneficial goals. Our third point was that diversity makes bubbles less likely. Bubbles are not just economic. There are intellectual bubbles, bubbles of belief. Uh, but the greater the independent diversity of opinion, the more likely the herd would reach the right answer. Fourth, uh, decentralization and competition seem to benefit all systems. Uh, a decentralized competitive system superiority is widespread, or at least assumed, but may not be universal. And fifth, uh, the greater the variety within a system, the more regulation will reduce its variety. But we also find, of course, that more diversity frequently clashes with society's increasingly risk-averse behaviors. So that was sort of where we wound up last year. Now, fundamentalism refers to a belief in and, it's, and a strict adherence to a set of basic principles. And while it is often used pe pejoratively, like greed in open commerce, Fundamentalism does drive people at times to do many good things, uh, good works. Now, people wonder how there can be fundamentalism in quasi-science such as economics and finance. 
Uh, but I would point out to you that our debating lines are as hard drawn and fierce as those of the Gaza Strip or Belfast Falls Road, long-term versus short-term, fiscal versus monetary, Keynesian versus Friedmanite, free versus regulated, selfish versus selfless, uh, et cetera, public sector, private sector, as we've seen in the debates in Britain uh, over the last few months. We have no shortage of fundamentalists, heretics or apostates, let alone high priests, shamans, or gurus. And as for charlatans, well. Rather ironically, uh, while modern Keynesians seem fervent, it was John Maynard Keynes himself who was really quite flexible. He said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Now, fundamentalist principles dictate crucial policies all around us. For example, letting banks go bust or saving them, quantitative easing or fiscal prudence, deflation or inflation, the distribution of income or wealth. And in the current crisis, it's economic religions that are dictating the flows of global finance and the funds of government intervention. At Gresham College, where Sir Thomas himself funded the idea of new learning, that is experimental science, it is important to admit that the concept of scientific inquiry in commerce is worshiped more in the abstract than used to test commercial faith. In all these areas, I'm frequently reminded as I look at what we're going to tackle this afternoon, Kessler's closed belief systems. To Kessler, closed belief systems have three main peculiarities. First, they claim to represent a truth of universal validity which explains everything. Second, the system cannot be refuted by the evidence because all potentially damaging data are automatically processed and reinterpreted to make them fit the expected pattern. And third, criticism is invalidated by shifting the argument to the motivation of the critic. Kessler provides an example of a closed belief system from the orthodox Freudian school of psychoanalysis. If you argued that for such and such reasons you doubted the existence of the so-called castration complex, the Freudian's prompt answer was that your argument betrayed an unconscious resistance indicating that you yourself have a castration complex. You were caught in a vicious circle. Now, much social science is about closed belief systems, and I contend that there may be five stages of belief and action even, progressing from some sort of cocktail party flirtation to fanaticism. Stage one, cocktail party atheist. You hold to the fundamental end belief of all social sciences, contingency theory. It all depends. Second stage, agnosticism. One flirts with a set of beliefs, but not such that other belief systems are excluded. Faith. One has a set of beliefs, but respects the right of other belief systems to exist. Fundamentalism, one has a set of beliefs. They are right to the exclusion of other beliefs. No other set of beliefs need to exist, and I can impose my views over yours. And finally, fanaticism, one has a set of beliefs. They are right. Other beliefs must be exterminated for the benefit of all. So perhaps this is a sort of a graduated scale that I suspect our speakers will tear apart and tease apart and elucidate. But of course, if fundamentalism is a singular application of a theory to the exclusion of others, then anarchism, that is, nothing rules, is the fundamental application of the subversion that nothing will work. And the only way to avoid fundamentalism is to have no beliefs at all and not believe in having no beliefs. So rather perversely, assuming one wishes to do anything at all, anarchism nicely cycles round to the atheism I mentioned as stage one, uh, contingency theory. So do we hold no beliefs? Everything depends. Contingency theory rules. 
Do we pick and choose as appropriate, some kind of uh, pragmatism? But what would we say about a mathematician who said, two plus two, it all depends, or two plus two, I'll pick a system that fits. Pragmatic choices are not made in a value vacuum. And as flexibility grows, conviction diminishes. So somewhere between fundamentalism and fanaticism, people frequently converge on one belief. Uh, all too often, the end justifies the means. And during a crisis with the concomitant social imperative to do something, fanatics can overrun non-ideological positions with ease. In the perverse way of feed-through systems, the fanatics become emboldened by their ideological successes and reinforced in their beliefs. Fanaticism has its self-gratification, while tolerance simply has another cheek. And the uber-pragmatist is as much to be feared as the fanatic. His or her ends will always justify the means. A good indicator of the fragility of belief systems is their dependence on history. History is fundamental to fundamentalism. It is the return to the basics, such as the Tea Party and the US Constitution at the moment. Systems coalesce around these stories uh, that, that, that center around their beliefs. History can sometimes provide justification. Decades or centuries of adherence can't be wrong. History can also provide a traje trajectory, something rooted in a more distant past, must have a purpose, implying some teleology. It is not surprising to find economic fundamentalists in my area tracing their ways back to Keynes or Ricardo or Smith, just as others trace their fundamentalism back to sacred texts. And the more the story matters, the more we need to question the story if what matters is what works. Some other good indicators of fundamentalism and fanaticism are splinter groups. Uh, Wallace Stanley Sayre, a political scientist and professor at Columbia in the last century, supposedly said, in any dispute, the intensity of feeling is inversely proportional to the value of the stakes at issues. Uh, and so by way of corollary, uh, that is why academic, academic politics are so bitter, or academic disputes are so bitter because there is so little at stake. Now, satirists regularly uh, tackle these, the, the triviality of fundamental heresies. Just think of Jonathan Swift's big-endian, little-endian controversies between Lilliput and Blefescu. But one can only have a perspective on triviality from the outside. Well, you would expect any self-respecting business person to reduce any complex situation to the fundamentals, a two-by-two -two matrix. And unwilling to disappoint you in this slide, I'd like to submit my thoughts before we begin our symposium. This slide contrasts simplicity of interpretation against strength of belief in an attempt to classify belief systems. On the vertical axis, we have simplicity of interpretation from low to high. On the horizontal axis, we have strength of belief from left to right, low to high. And the four resulting intersections are, I think, just worth a quick mention. Low simplicity and low belief, bottom left, might well be an intellectual quest. People in this quadrant are dealing with complexity and accept high levels of uncertainty. Many philosophers might fall into this box. Perhaps this is the Anglican Church, highly tolerant and able to accept high levels of ambu ambiguity and diversity. Moving up to the top left, high simplicity and low belief might be either social cohesion or social coercion. Cohesion in the sense of simple beliefs and ceremonies that cement community, 
perhaps as simple as the recent Guy Fawkes celebrations in England last week. Coercion, in the sense of simple beliefs or ceremonies such as celebrating tyrants in the Roman era to Central Asian tyrants today or North Korean and Burmese dictators. To the top right, today's subject may focus more in this area, high simplicity and high belief, the ability to grasp the fundamentals and then build outwards through social mechanisms that affect wider society. And finally, low simplicity and high belief in the bottom right may be rare, but might well constitute sex, which I've oversimplistically labeled as mysticism. And I always love a particular quote I came across many years ago uh, looking at strategic planning, and it, was, it revolved around a, an anthropologist's study of the Nupi people in West Africa. They have a very uh, sophisticated system of prophecy based on patterns in the sand. And as one anthropologist studying the Nupi noted back in 54, the most striking feature of Nupi sand divining is the contrast between its pretentious theoretical framework and its primitive and slipshod application and practice. For me, the key issue uh, for society is the ability to rely on freedom of thought, freedom of speech, and freedom of expression. The crucial arguments on the importance of freedom of thought and expression come together in John Stuart Mill's 1859 work on liberty. Debate on truth drives out falsity, and ideas on their own, true or false, should not be feared. In fact, without debate over ideas, we would never find truths. Mill argued forcefully for vigorous discussion to counter, as he called it, the deep slumber of decided opinion. And Karl Popper went further in the past century, pointing out that the very foundations of knowledge and science rely on falsifiability. A theory is scientific only insofar as it is falsifiable. Thus, a theory has little validity if it exists in an unfalsifiable environment, perhaps together constituting a closed system of belief. And that's why we have symposia, to provide falsifiable environments. And so long as those of strong faith stick to this third stage of the cocktail party, faith, they respect the right, however feeble, for other belief systems to exist and don't move to the fifth stage fanaticism, then society and uh, science function well enough. Oops. I'd just like to turn for a brief moment to the program. Um, for those of you who, who have been looking, you've got the program on your seats, and I won't uh, read out any lengthy introductions um, because uh, we have uh, short biographies of the panelists. Uh, but the, today we're going to have Professor Tzvi Ben-Dor-Benit, uh, who's uh, come over actually from Paris uh, and is affiliated with uh, New York University. And he's going to be talking to us for, uh, about fundamentalism. His talk's about 45 to 50 minutes, and so there will be time for some questions afterwards if we can keep them related to the talk. Uh, then Father William Joseph is going to be talking about the fundamentalist mentality, getting us to see these other points of view. And then uh, Bill uh, will also be happy to take a few questions, and then we'll have a break for about 15 minutes to stretch our legs. When we return at 4.30 um, sharp, uh, John Dick will be talking about Made in America, Christian fundamentalism. Uh, John, too, has come over um, from Leuven, um, overnight, um, so we're delighted to have two people come from abroad to address us. Uh, and then if we keep to time, we'll have a full half hour for open panel discussion, which I'll just be sort of indicating. We'll probably take questions in threes if that's all right, just to get a lot of stuff from the floor. Um, we'll have a little bit of a close, 
And for those of you who need to depart at six sharp, as, as ever at Gresham, we shall. But for those of you who'd like to stay, all three speakers have said that they'll stay for the reception, which will be held in the headmaster's office. So I'm looking forward to a very exciting day. Um, and I think, you know, really what matters to me is that diversity in opinion today rules. If I could please call upon uh, Tzvi to come on up and uh, to talk to us about fundamentalism itself. Professor Tzvi, then Dorothy. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.